Thanks for tuning in to the Survival to Thrival podcast, based on the book series with the same name. I'm Helen Croydon, and I'm the interviewer of the biggest stars of the show, the two co-authors, Tehi Norm and Bob Tinker. Tehi and Bob are a duo of investor and entrepreneur. They have a long history of working together and have written two books together, aimed at founders and entrepreneurs striving to build enterprise startups. This podcast is based on the themes, advice and real world stories from their book series, Survival to Thrival. If you enjoyed this, please like it, subscribe or share it with your network. Well, this episode, we're joined by Jacko van der Kooy. He's founder of Winning by Design, which helps customers to design, build, and scale their sales efforts. Well, he's a total expert in go-to-market fit. We want to brainstorm today some of the ways of implementing go-to-market out in the real world. So as usual, I'm going to hand over to Tehi and Bob to ask Jacko all they want about finding go-to-market fit. So first, Yaka, I really want to thank you for coming on our podcast. I know, you know, you're a, a social media celebrity, so appreciate you coming on board. And, uh, you know, Winning by Design now is uh, incredibly successful. I remember when just it was just you, you know, walking into my office. So it's uh, been quite a transformation. And, and you've worked on improving the go-to-market for uh, a lot of customers, but uh, I thought it'd be good for the audience to get to know the person behind the person here. And so if you could just share with the audience why you decided to start Winning by Design in the first place. Well, thank you, Tehi, for that wonderful introduction. Yes, well, you know, like the best to know is that I'm an engineer by trade and, you know, growing up under uh, Philips Electronics in the Netherlands. And as an engineer, I was responsible uh, for making sure that the products in the field, satellite products, were delivered correctly. That made me a sales engineer. I stepped into the deal and learned over the years the power of really helping a customer solve their problem and not necessarily sell a feature, but look at it from the client's perspective. Starting 2012-13, I, I brought that into uh, in, in, into a consulting uh, company, and today, you know, like you said, we're helping lots of companies with that practical insight. What is the practical perspective? How do we help uh, not cost to sell customers, but rather to help our customers to buy the solution that will benefit them? And I always liked your phrase, you know, how to make sales as a science. I think it's a, a really an extension of that engineering methodology to sales, which is a, a very uh, a unscientific process, it seems. But do you think it's actually possible to make sales into a science? Absolutely. I think that sales was one of the first groups uh, in the early days to embrace data, obviously with conversion rates, win rate, average price, and so on and so forth. So it early on already embraced that. Um, you know, like uh, over the past years, uh, we see more and more science coming into it. You know, if you're looking at, you know, voice analysis, call analysis, and so on, it becomes more and more scientifically driven. Uh, where it is lacking is that many times the execution in the field uh, is still based on a gut feel, where the analysis behind the scenes internally is very data driven. In the field, it is still very, you know, uh, yeah, very practical oriented, and not necessarily using best practices that are gained. This can be explained, by the way, because early on in sales, it was called an individual contributor, where sales professionals were set up to compete with each other, therefore not sharing best practices. 
You know, this tension between gut feel, you know, running sales as a gut feel and sort of sales as a science. Um, maybe you can explain how you see it across your clients, because I think, you know, you've worked with a lot of different clients, large and small, many geos, and also give the audience a kind of flavor of uh, the companies you've been seeing, because I think that will inform them of your, uh, the pers- from the way you're looking at things. Yeah, I think what we have seen is like when companies grow from one to 10 million, there's a particular approach. When they go from 10 to 50-ish million, there's a particular approach. And when, when you see them grow from 50, let's say to 500 million and above, they're, they're, you know, like these are phases that a companies go through. We see companies across all these phases and, you know, like what they have in common and what is different in these phases. But going back to your question, you know, where does gut feel fit in? Simply said, is that the gut feel of a VP of sales or a CRO is often gained over two to three jobs. Historically, those jobs lasted somewhere between four to six years. Nowadays, they last somewhere between two to four years. Uh, and in the, the startup world, they can you know, go down to 18 months. That means that over time, it takes a VP of sales or a CRO about three to four jobs or over the span of five to 10 years to actually get a good gut feeling. This at a time where about every year, every you know, like six to 18 months, we see radical transformation of go-to-market strategies. That means that the experience that a VP of sales or a CEO brings to the table often is outdated by the time they come into the, new, the next gig because simply things are changing too fast. This is the reason why we say we trust your gut but we need to prove by the data. And, you know, like if, some, if a VP of sales says, oh, I really think this is going on, that is a salesperson issue, then we say, okay, well, great. Let's take a look and see if the data tells us the same story. Does that help? Yeah, that helps a lot. So why don't we um, keep uh, uh, extending on how to apply the data? Because, you know, I think you've worked now with 800 clients and uh, so many geos it is you, you break the go to market into these kind of three company stages uh, by revenue. And maybe for each of these stages, what are some useful data insights? Yeah, so that first stage when we were looking at growing, let's say from one to $10 million, what you look in that stage is that the most common challenge is that you're moving out of a founder stage mode into a repetitive sales process mode. You're seeing that sales Uh, people have to be able to start to sell. Now, in founder sales mode, every founder, you know, like in generally knows very well what the problem is that the client has. They know it because that's the reason why they founded the company. Also, they know the product very well. And so they, they, by the very nature of building the product and designing the product. Third, what they have is they provoke naturally very well. Yeah, what does provoke mean? I'm not sure exactly what. Yeah. You want to provoke a customer. Provoke means telling an existing, uh, telling a customer that their existing way of doing things is wrong and that their innovative solution that they're bringing to the table is a far better way of doing it. Hmm. This provoking is very dangerous and is very hard to reproduce by follow-on sales professionals because they don't have the depth of the understanding of the problem, nor the depth of the understanding of the solution. So a founder is very skilled in doing this. I see. Now this provoking causes that, you know, like what the sales professionals need to do in that one to $10 million, they often need to learn from the founder. 
That means that the founder, you know, often brings on the sales professionals and then, you know, say, says, yeah, six months, 12 months into the deal to the board, to the, to the executive team. I don't know who we brought on board, but, you know, like we're six months into it and I'm still outselling them. Are they really a professional? And you go like, well, of course you are. Like, like they are professionals. How much time have you spent on them telling them and educating them? And so, for example, what we recommend here to do is that founders in their sales pitches record the calls that they are having with the customers in those early months and educate the salespeople. See what I do here. See what I'm relating to here. And it's that they are more or less selling to their own salespeople before they start selling to the customer. Are, are there any other advice you have for founders to help uh, you know, their first uh, sales hires? Yes, hire people who take notes. Because in this process, there's so much learning going on that sales professionals need to learn. And, and the amount of knowledge they, they get in those first six months cannot be comprehended just by the, you know, like sitting there and listening right now. It's taking you know, comprehensive notes. Now, let's move to the next stage. So, you know, we've gone from one to 10. <clears throat> so in the next stage, what are the, the common challenges and how data can help? In the next stage, what we are going to see, where in that first stage you come out, you often still hear a lot of the following. Hey, we are growing sales. Let's hire more people. Or sales is not going too, too well. Let's fire people and replace them. Stuff like that. In that, with that mindset, people are still very dependent on what we call superstars. Their dependency on growth is dependent on one, two, you know, like of the superstars they have on the team. And those superstars can easily overcome the average performers of the rest of the team. So you're saying that superstars can disguise relatively poor systems, poor process, poor sales, in other words. Absolutely. This is the reason why in that first stage, really what you want to bring on is you want to bring on a sales leader that brings on top talent along with them, the two top performers from last company. So that, that eliminates a variable in this process. Mm -hmm. Once we go beyond 10, you will see by the very nature of recurring revenue that the amount of deals that we brought in can never be compensated by the performance of, of superstars. Mm -hmm. What we now need to do is we need to switch to a process and to, a, to an approach that can be copied and replicated and grown internationally, nationally, across top performers, across average performers. That is a, quick, is a major shift from most sales leaders that either have a very, you know, are very akin to that early stage, but have a hard time switching into that process mode. So how do you help sales leaders make that transition in adopting process? I mean, I, I know I think it's just sort of genetic, you know, being Northern Europeans are always into process. But, you know, I don't I'm not sure Americans are as process driven as Northern Europeans. I know Koreans are not. Koreans are always into shortcuts. Oh my gosh, Tehi, are you putting entire, you know, entire cultures into, into boxes? Like, this is good. Like, let's hire a Dutch person for process and let's hire an American. There is truth to that. There is some, uh, there is some basic truth. Obviously, this, this hap, this is more dependent on, on an individual person's perspective. What we see if we look at, at these different, you know, like the different growth cycles here, the VP of sales, that is a common known that has been in the industry for 10, 15, 20 years, they are easier to make that shift in several cases because they have done it before. This is not necessarily knowledge that is dependent on new go-to-market strategies. The switching to process is a common step they can take. Mm -hmm. Now, what is, what is of challenge here and what we commonly find 
is if that VP of sales is not able to switch to process, but is still a very meaningful, uh, uh, makes a very meaningful contribution to the team. Which often that that VP of sales has you know has great relationships with top accounts in the, in the, that the customer secures. So you don't want to let that VP of sales go. So now we get that challenge. You need a new process driven VP of sales or CRO. You still are having a VP of sales that is responsible for a lot of revenue, and this tension starts to occur, often resulting in hiring a CRO that is overlooking the current VP of sales and is more responsible for a data driven, uh, process driven approach. That's helpful. Now let's move to the third stage. In that third stage, so now that second stage, you're going to come out of this, and you're going to find that that you have, you know, let's say 20, 30, 40 salespeople. You have process in place. What you're going to find in that third stage is that you actually need to diversify over different go-to-market strategies. You may have dabbled with this in the second stage, but in the third stage, you may have you need cha- you may have a channel uh, uh, business, you may have a direct business, you may have uh, uh, an SMB, a mid market, an enterprise. You may have started to segment all these businesses and all of them ha- all these segments, and all of these segments have a different go to market motion, and that motion needs to be understood. This, for example, can be explained when an SMB rep, you know, closing an enterprise deal on accident doesn't make that rep an enterprise sales rep. Mm-hmm. These motions where, an, where you'll see that companies make a mistake is when you see that they make the different segments based on the size of the company. And for example, say, oh, companies with over a thousand employees are enterprise or companies who are over $20 million in revenue or $2 billion in revenue are enterprise or something like that. What we find is what differentiates segmentation is not the, the uh, you know, like data like that. What makes the difference is how are they, what is the buying process? Right. And the buying process often in enterprises is stage-based. That means that you have to go through multiple decision factors. You have legalities to deal with. You may have desktop compliance, security compliance to deal with. That you know, requires the sales professional to orchestrate and organize all these resources with data and you know, personal uh, issues that they have to deal with. Each decision maker may have an, a different decision uh, factor to, de- to, 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 uh, to address. You know, we talked about how go-to-market changes as uh, the company gets bigger. I'm also curious about your insights about uh, go-to-market organizational strategy, depending upon where the company is located. Because I know you've got clients in Brazil, you've got clients in Europe, as well as the United States. And, you know, just curious, based on different cultures or different geographies, if there is any difference, or maybe there is no difference. Historically, there was, but I have to say that over the years through the globalization that I think has been pushed by the likes of Facebook and LinkedIn, we start to see more and more commonality across these cultures. The culture is more dependent or is different based on channel that they use. So for example, WhatsApp is more commonly used in Europe and in other parts of the world, where down here we may use, we see LinkedIn as more of a common use. We see some privacy differences between the European contingent where, you know, like reaching out to somebody via LinkedIn is, is looked up or frowned upon more so than it is here in the US. Latin America, for example, we see a difference where people are leaving each other short voicemail messages via WhatsApp, which is a very common approach. And that in part is sometimes through the fluctuations of the capability of the, of the network, making it less possible. 
this level of asynchronous exchanges that are taking place can benefit a certain region just because of the nature of, 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 of the infrastructure in place. Would you say that uh, sales is becoming more data driven, that it's that is the hum- what's causing all the geos to sort of become more standard or is it something else? I think that culturally we are getting used to the same information through the same channel. So culturally, when you work on I Facebook, see. you get more used to shorter messages and text messaging. So that's one. Data-driven is a very uniform language. Uh, a conversion rate on a win can be very similar in one region to another. Mm-hmm. What we need to realize, however, is that in many cultures, the relationship that exists between a buyer and a seller has a different meaning. In Asia, for example, many people still rely on that relationship. Uh, in China, we see that the relationship is very meaningful and therefore that that can be a determining factor that we need to take into account. You know, one thing I was I thought would be helpful for the audience, Yako, is, you know, I, I think of you as like uh, the go-to-market doctor. So if you've got a patient who uh, has a go-to-market issue, you know, they're struggling, they can't diagnose it, they don't know what to do, you know, they need to go see a doctor. And, you know, you, you're the, uh, the doctor that they go to see. And, and so you've now seen a lot of patients. You know, as I said, you've, I think you said you've had more than like 800 clients, big and small. So when you see a go-to-market patient, what are like the common things you look for? Like if you're doing a diagnosis, the common recommendations that you find will be helpful, especially the ones that are counterintuitive. I think that where I'm going to hone in on is on this on the leadership's position in sales, whether that is a CRO or VP of sales. What we see commonly is that the world over the past 20 to 30 years has been historically built on the backs of the B2B sale that is considered a consultative sale. In that consultative sale, value proposition is the key word in which we establish uh, how much value we can offer to a client and build an ROI on that. You spend $100,000 on us, you can, you know, we make you a million dollars. The problem is that, his, that with the advent of SaaS and recurring revenue, the price of the product became a fraction of the original purchase price, where you originally would buy an SAP or you know an IBM or something like that for multi-millions of dollars. Historically, right? You now can buy that for like whatever, $20,000, $10,000 a month. Mm-hmm. That means that the ROI by very nature is 10x. So, you know, this is the, for example, the reason why four or five years ago, you know, uh, sales professionals were not needed, didn't need you know, that much of depth of, of sales expertise is simply called up as like, look, I noticed that you're currently spending on your ERP system like $2 million a year. We can help you for $20,000, blah, blah, blah. Look, very provocative. You know, very easy to deliver. SDR, sales development rep, could easily set that up. Mm-hmm. Today, however, we don't have that same situation. Today, SaaS and re- other recurring revenue sources are extremely common. So where we originally went from budget, band. Then we went, then we then went to forms of ROI for which Matic was a very common approach. We are now finding that buyers are buying based on priority. Budget plus cost equals ROI. Budget plus cost plus priority equals where we are right now. Is this a priority right now? Because I got 10 different SaaS services to buy. And so selling against priority is very different. And the reason why is 
priority fluctuates more rapidly over time. It's more yeah, fluc- fluctuating than budget. Budget is often very stable on cycles of six to 12 months. Right, right. The understanding of a CRO coming into a new organization and understanding that by that over the past six, 18, 24 months, the fundamentals, the first principles of sales are very different. And to reinvent themselves in that role is key because to keep going back to what was happening 20 years ago does not apply to a product. So basically, when you say it's a priority to the customer, normally it means it's an urgent pain for the customer. That's right. And now what we see today, and I call this day of buying on impact. Historically, yep. customers bought on value. Mm-hmm. Value is the promise of impact. Yeah. If you buy $18 million worth of routers from me, you know, 12 to 18 months from now, when they're installed at all your branches, you will have this impact. Mm-hmm. People today don't have that level of time, wait 18 months and so on. And so you'll see that sales cycles have shortened up in many cases from what historically were nine to 18 months to about six months in B2B. Mm-hmm. But also the return at which point in time I'm going to achieve the impact is far shorter. We're talking about weeks to months that they want to see first impact. Priority cut. Being, having priority of the customer, I agree, is absolutely critical. This idea of you know addressing an urgent pain and um, how do you do you create priority or do you filter for priority or what? Okay, so that's the diagnosis. You know, the diagnosis is is, is, is this priority or not? What is the cure? The cure is to understand what the impact is that the client want. Not what it is that your product can do, mm-hmm. but what the impact is. I see. And to, and to make sure you help them buy that impact. Now, impact can be different. I compare this, for example, when you're buying a car, the impact that you're buying is that it gets you to destination. But an Uber gives you the same impact. It's just at a fraction of the cost. You just need to know. You know like now, if you're buying a car to go to the mountains because you love off-roading, then Uber won't serve you that different impact, different product to sell. Right. So delivering, you know, fast impact, you know, this time to first value is critical here. You know, obviously shorter, shorter the time to first value and deliver impact, uh, um, uh, the, the faster the customer satisfaction. And as you say, it shortens also the sales cycle. The extreme case of that is on the product-led growth companies. So what would be the second sort of diagnosis and cure that you see? The understanding that the risk has radically shifted. What do you mean by that? Yeah. The B2B model historically puts all the risk at the buyer and none of it at the seller. I once, y'all, in my early days, sold something at behest of uh, my boss. The client didn't need it. It was a $400,000 purchase. I got full commission. I knew that the client wouldn't get any value out of it. I, you know, like, and you know, it's my last purchase that I did that way or sell that I did that way. Why? Seller has no risk. Thank right. you. Product shipped. Thank you very much. Good luck. You know, like now the buyer had all the risk. But now with recurring revenue, it is the seller who actually carries the risk because we're not making a profit on that first six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. The profit often comes 18, 24 months. As recent research showed, it takes often 21 months for most of the top 50 companies in SaaS, it takes 20 months on average to recoup the client acquisition cost. Mm-hmm. That means that the risk of the purchase now actually sits with the seller who has to buy uh, you know, infrastructure and cloud infrastructure and do all the engineering and so on, uh, you know, like um, front the client acquisition cost. 
Yeah, and I see that even pronounced as we go from subscription to consumption models. It, it, uh, exactly, it's even more pronounced. Yes. And now I'll give you a practical example and a practical implementation. You, you, this means that discount, discount was invented when clients were buying multi-millions of dollars, right? And you know, we fit it to the budget, okay? You cannot give discount on a recurring revenue service because as much as there's compound in profit over time, a discount given compounds in losses over time. Right. So you've got to be extremely careful when we look at the customer success side of the business where profit is generated. They control three variables in the equation to profit. They control how much they churn one way or another. Mm-hmm. They control how much upsell there is and they control the length of the contract. Under that, those three variables gen- are the profit engine. Yeah. Now, in that, we are measuring these these percentages in single-digit percentages. While at the front end, customers, our sales, can often give discounts as high as 10, 15, 20%, which will compound subsequently over the years to come. Mm -hmm. This is one practical advice that we give sales leaders. Look at your last month, quarter, whatever annual sales. Take down all the deals closed. Put a category in your Excel spreadsheet. What was the average discount driven, given? And if you see 20%, 20%, 15%, 20%, 25%, got something to work on. If you see 3%, 4%, 6%, 7%, we are in the realm of, hey, we're trying to match it to the customer's budget. But this is a great. Create a list, 20 accounts that you closed in the last month, quarter, whatever it is. Note down the, the discount and review that as, as a management team and discuss, you know, like whether these 20, 25 round number discounts really cannot be, you know, like, like tuned a little bit. Right. You think it's the better way to give discounts is by saying you get one free month or something like that? It depends on the, on the product and service. Uh, for example, one free month, if you can achieve that impact within that month, absolutely get them hooked. But if it takes you 30 days to get the client onboarded, then you, you know, like obviously that wouldn't make, make sense. So it li- often, res- it's always focused on that impact. And I think that we are living in an economy that this impact is super important to all of us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I give an example. If you order something before nine o'clock, I ordered a book the other day and it says, oh, it won't come until Monday next week. You go like, what's wrong with you folks? Like, mm-hmm. really? Like, like, we're so driven on, I need it by this afternoon. Like, no, absolutely. Here's a first principle for you. Customers hate being sold, but they love to buy. <laughs> Amen. You know, with that, that's a great way of ending the, the podcast. That's a great piece of insight. Really appreciate, Yako, you're coming on here and uh, sharing your wisdom with us. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for the audience for listening to this. And, and I hope it, you know, like it's a great, that there's a few key takeaways. All I'm asking you as, a, as an audience, pick one key takeaway and put it into action. Because in so many of these podcasts, it's very easy to listen and go away on your merry day, but like pick, pick one, just turn one and turn it into action. Thanks for listening to the Survival to Thrival podcast with me, Helen Croydon, and co-authors Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker. This podcast is aimed at enterprise startup leaders. If there's someone you know who would find this podcast useful, please share it with them, subscribe, or leave a review. That's how others find us. Oh,